Welcome to Hellas for Hyphenates for March 2019. I am writer hyphen second coming Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... I'm writer hyphen critic hyphen dead inside doppelganger Rochelle Semenovich. And with us we have... Rhys Graham. I don't know. I don't know your format of um, writer hyphen director hyphen deadbeat hyphen cinephile <laughs> hyphen whatever else comes up on the day that I need it to come up. <laughs> Perfect. You nailed it. Rhys, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you oh, on. My, totally my pleasure. I'm very, very happy to be here. Well, we are going to jump in, as always, with uh, a look back at some of the key films we've seen this month. And Rochelle, do you want to kick us off with High Life? Yeah. Our first film is the sci-fi mystery drama High Life, the first English-language film from French auteur Claire Denis, whose films include, of course, Beau Trabais, Trouble Every Day, and most recently Let the Sun Shine In. But in this story, we focus on Monty, played by Robert Pattinson, and his baby daughter, who are the last survivors on a spaceship set on a one-way mission to a black hole. Earth, if it still exists, has long forgotten them. The mystery of the disappearance of the other crew, who are death row inmates led by the sinister Dr. Dibbs, Juliette Binoche, is slowly unravelled in a very non-linear plot. Why was she obsessed with reproduction? And why does this spaceship resemble an abortion clinic? Lee, were you a willing passenger on this journey? Very much so. I really love this. I love Claire Denis. And, Reese, I know you haven't seen this, but you, I know, are a huge Claire Denis fan. You, uh, had we not done her on the show before, you, you would have uh, picked her, I believe. Yeah, I absolutely would have. I'm a, a complete obsessive and really dying to see this film, but unfortunately haven't had a chance to see it. But... Absolutely. I, I, when I, I think the first time you asked me on the show, I was I immediately thought of Claire Denis, but then realised that Lynn Shelton had spoken about her in the past. So damn that Lynn Shelton! I, I know, I know. I know. Okay. Um, well, I think I think you're going to like this. It's very much in line, I think, thematically with her past films. But it's so much fun seeing her do a science fiction film. You know, those best, my favourite space exploration films are take the sort of unimaginably cosmic and tell us something about ourselves. Like, look at 2001, Solaris. Uh, even, like, something like Dark Star. And I think High Life has a lot in common with all of them. But it's, and like Dark Star, it's, like, really deliberately grotty. It's, like, criminals trapped inside a boxy spaceship. They're heading to a black hole. It's really sort of grim, but also weirdly profound. Rochelle, did you did you feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, there are some scenes, some in imagery in this film that are just unforgettable mm. and amazing. And I think the opening sequences with Robert Pattinson and this baby, who's this like just beautiful, spontaneous, natural baby, who's obviously you know not acting because she's a baby. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen a baby in in a spaceship before. It was sort of done with such love and naturalness and it, you know it's a sort of mini essay in itself about the meaning of life and how we don't really belong in outer space it's mm. just you know gorgeous and sublime but I mean I've read that Claire Denis and her screenwriter whose name I can't recall um her frequent screenwriter on this like to just when they're writing a script they get scattered images and then they later sort of add a narrative in to connect them, connect those images together. Right. And I would have liked a little bit more connecting mm. here. There's a lot of work for the viewer to do. I mean, that is Claire Denis. She, she does that. But um, 
I kind of felt like there were a lot of gaps that weren't necessarily like increasing the mystery and effectiveness of, of, of the story. They were just kind of maybe incomplete storytelling. Mm. I did wonder what it was this film was trying to say. There's so much going on. It's so, it, it does feel like there's a real profundity in there. And, but then I, I started to think it's just one big dirty joke. It's, a film about psychosexual violence and eroticism. And the whole film is about people plunging into a black hole. That's the film. <laughs> I can't be the only one who made that connection, surely. If I am, I, am uh, I, I might need some therapy. Well, this is, this is a film that has, um, you know, a place in the spaceship called the fuck box. Yes. Where they all go to get off. So, you know, and Juliet Binoche looks like she's kind of playing with this creepy role and and it's it is comedic mm. isn't it absolutely um, a little bit yeah I and mean, she quite often has a lot you know a really nice streak of black humor in her films um but i just wanted to interrupt with a question because the the thing that intrigued me about high life and having not seen it is that i can't separate claire Denis from the work she does with agnes goddard the cinematographer mm. and this is the first film I Yorick. think that she's, um, it's, it's Yorick Lasseau and, and yes. I just was really curious as to how that felt compared to her body of work, like hmm. for you guys. It's not as beautiful, you know, mm. in, visually. It's it's not as lyrical, but I think that's fitting with the theme. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, I think the moments of beauty are confined to the CGI, uh, which and I think that's meant to be a deliberate juxtaposition of you've had all this sort of like tiny confined ugliness and then suddenly there's this beautiful majesty you know yes deployed to you know just momentary effect and it and it sort of knocks you back because you haven't seen anything like that for the whole film but yeah i'm not i'm not not sure um i think rochelle's probably right about it not being as beautiful and and maybe deliberately so as the other films Mm. i can't wait to see it that takes us to us. Years after a traumatic experience at an amusement park in a hall of mirrors, Adelaide is on holiday with her husband and two children and finds herself reliving the memories of that childhood encounter. One evening, she and her family at their holiday house are visited by four mysterious figures dressed in red. As this family invades their holiday house, our family, Adelaide's family, soon realises that these invaders are in fact their exact doppelgangers they are us rochelle did you enjoy jordan peele's latest horror film or is it better that i ask your uncanny twin <laughs> look we both enjoyed it um but we were divided yeah yeah um <laughs> untethered even uh yeah look it's it's great fun i had great fun with this film i really love the setup where they take uh he takes us back to 1986 so it's this kind of prologue with um, the little girl in a in a seaside fun fair, and she goes into the the house of mirrors and encounters her double, and um, I just thought that was so beautifully handled with those those comic touches, but and the creepiness. Mm. I lo- I loved a lot of this film, but it kind of lost me in the last act. There was so much exposition; it mm. it just it felt like he was losing the plot and. Yeah, Get Out was such a tight film and this is a rambling one, but it's, it was deeply unsettling in parts and really, really interesting. What mm. about you? Yeah, I think I'm a bit the same. I, um, 
I'm, I'm a huge fan of Get Out. It's one of my favourite horror films of recent years. And it's weird because with Us, I loved everything about it except the, the film. Um, it's like What? The, yeah. <laughs> the film didn't work for me, but I love the way it looks. I love the aesthetic. I, I love everything Peel is doing here, that, the uncanny reflection of self and the, the effectiveness of how absolutely terrifying Lupita Nyong'o's performance is. And... Uh, the sound design of when she's a kid and that sort of overwhelming thing when when you're a kid and you don't quite know how to process the world around you. Uh, and they they capture that perfectly. I just love everything about the film, but I don't think the film itself really massively works. It's not... In, in part, I think it's because I never quite buy that these are real people reacting to a real situation. It's it's not mannered enough to be this sort of ornate theatrical David Lynch type film, but it's not naturalistic enough for me to feel it's it's genuinely happening. And I think you're absolutely right about the exposition. You know, the enemy of horror is exposition because we fear the unknown. And the less unknown it becomes, the less mysterious, the less scary it becomes. And I, th- I think the subtext he's going for is fantastic. You know, he's one of the most interesting horror filmmakers because he's just putting it all front and center. Everything he wants to say about race and America is just put out there on front street. And I love that. But I think he still could have achieved that if he, if he'd held back on the revelations, if he'd, if he kept the, um, the mystery alive a little bit. Mm. Having said that, it's still one of the most interesting horror films around at the moment. I yeah. mean, you've just you've just got to see it, and we don't see enough middle class black people on screen in horror or in any kind of film, and that's just it's sort of sad, but it's refreshing mm. in itself. And um and you know, there's some really funny moments here, and some of the action is is really well directed, gripping. I don't know if I was ever that scared though, mm. really. Right. Lupita Nyong'o is really great in yeah. um as both characters that she plays. And I read somewhere that this was the biggest box office opening for a film with a black female lead oh, um, wow. ever, which is something to be kind of noted. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Reese, are you a fan of uh, Get Out? I did. I loved Get Out. Um, so I'm very keen to see this one. And it's, I've kind of, I've accidentally found myself already reading the kind of critical analysis of it and. Mm. The interpretation, so um, yeah, I'm very curious, but it's uh, it's intriguing that it hasn't quite grabbed either of you. Yeah, I, I really thought I, I was sort of seeing the, the tepid reactions by some critics and going, I just sense that I'm going to be one of the film's big defenders, and I, I still want to be that because I love Jordan Peele and I love so much about this film, but I did find myself being a little like, it's not 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 didn't quite work for me, even though I think I'd watch it again. So much of the imagery has stuck out for me that I kind of want to watch it again. Um, same, yeah. same. And I read that he's doing the a new Twilight TV series remake, yes. which will be so interesting. It looks bloody amazing. I, I can't wait. Well, on to something completely different. Our next film is Destroyer, in which Nicole Kidman plays a grizzled, and I mean really grizzled, LAPD detective Erin Bell, who goes vigilante on a vengeance mission. She wants to take out a gang of bank robbers led by the evil Silas, Toby Kebble. Many years earlier, as a young cop, much less grizzled, Erin was placed undercover with a gang in the desert hideaway along with her partner Chris, played by Sebastian Stan. The decisions she made there are the ones that caused the wreckage of her current life, including her fractured relationship with her teenage daughter, played by Jade Pettijohn. 
Written by Phil Kay and Matt Manfredi, Destroyer is directed with tough assurance by Karen Kusama, who gave us Girl Fight in 2002. Lee and Reese, were you destroyed by Destroyer? Well, I personally wasn't. I wanted to be. I thought it was, um, you know, a really interesting. It was. I mean, she's such a she's such a fascinating character, and I thought it was, uh, you know, one of those great portrayals of somebody, you know, a police detective who's destroyed by their obsession with, you know, with, with justice. Justice, absolutely. Um, but it, for me, it was one of those portrayals that I think was so enamoured with itself that it lost me along the way. I found that the kind of the impassive nature of her performance and the kind of the idea of this totally joyless, you know, perpetually hungover detective kind of tired me, to be honest with you. I mean, I thought there were, I, I really loved the way the narrative resolved itself. I thought there was really clever structurally and I think Karen Kassam was a fantastic director, but mm. I just found myself floating away and getting, getting, <laughs> not being drawn into those long lingering hungover close-ups on her eyes as I think the director wanted, but rather just kind of getting a little bit lost. Hmm. Mm. It really takes its time to do what it wants to do in terms of like, you know, spending time with this, this very, dishevelled and unhappy character. Uh, yeah, it's, yes, it's, not a, absolutely. it's not a tightly plotted, um, fast-paced film. Mm. No, and I kind of, and I sort of enjoyed that part of it. And the thing that I really love is I, I have a complete adoration of that um, completely sun-bleached uh, L.A. noir thing that, that a lot of uh, directors play around with, this idea that that where we, you know, where, where these kind of these these stories of justice and crime and, and, and freight edges take place is this leached out glaringly bright desert landscape i mean it just looks so beautiful it reminded me of um did either of you guys ever see that that eric zonko film with tilda swinton julia no no uh, it's what you know it sort of does a similar thing she, she's always waking up hungover in her car it's kind of light blaring in and it's hot and sweaty and so you know it's it's a very tangible sensorial kind of way to deal with the character but um again for 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 reasons i can't necessarily articulate i just found myself being being repelled by the performance or put at a distance by her performance rather than sort of slowly getting under the skin of the character okay mm. yeah I, I i was uh i think i might have been a little more won over um by her character but it was sort of that you know watching a watching an actor give an unlikely performance type of showy role um which i'm not entirely against even though i feel i should be um but yeah, this this film very much felt like a really stock standard thriller, the type of '90s cop film where you see a, a problematic lead solve a you know, labyrinthine mystery about drugs and gangs, and there's a personal drama. The, the difference is we've never really seen this with a female lead, uh, mm, and you can't discount that. Absolutely um, not, and, and no. yeah, and that makes and you know that is interesting to sort of see it from <laughs> from that perspective, but the. I was sort of, I wasn't completely thrilled by the narrative until the final moments, which obviously don't want to spoil, but uh, when it, sh it started to show its hand, I was like, oh, that's where you were going with this. Okay, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a little more on board than I was. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me is Karen Kusama is an amazing director. I will watch anything she makes now. I, th I think this was just brilliantly directed. Um, the second biggest takeaway for me is that this is the second film in as many years in which Nicole Kidman has played a character 
who has had to give a skeezy guy a handjob in exchange for something she wants. Now, <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Deer last year, Destroyer this year, I think the next film she's in is a biopic of Roger Ailes, so I don't like the idea of this trend being broken anytime soon. Um, <laughs> only like, you only you would make these connections, but yes. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> only me, really? Okay, yeah, no, fair enough. But no, I, I, def- I definitely rate this film. Um, I think if the script was more engaging from start to end, if it was doing something a little more original, I think this could be, you know, an all-time classic. Uh, as it stands, it's a really, really solid film that's that's pretty much all about showing how great uh, Kidman and Kusama are. And um, I was just thinking before, there is um, a film that Ang Lee's next film is a script that's been floating around for ages called Gemini or Gemini Man. And mm. they've been talking about doing it with so many different actors and it's basically about uh, sort of this, the idea is you get an action star. Uh, and I think they tried it with Harrison Ford and Bruce Willis. And then with CGI, they have sort of his younger clone come, and it's a battle between the sort of younger and older versions of this of, of this character. And they're doing it with Will Smith, and apparently they've gone all out with the special effects, uh, creating the old Smith and the new Smith. And uh, and I was just looking at like the flashbacks with Nicole Kidman and going, you just save save millions of dollars on CGI just by casting Nicole Kidman. It just <laughs> seems true. like a way yes, of saving budget. I want to know. Do you know? I mean. She just looks so convincingly young mm. in the young scenes, and it's like, how? I, th- is this I think CGI? they put, Is this what we can do now? I or think they put more effort cold? into aging her up because you see her yeah. like in interviews and on red, red carpet and whatever, and, and she kind of looks like she does in the flashbacks. And not that I want to, you know, spend the whole review talking about her looks, but it is, uh, uh, it's it a is pretty part remarkable. Of this that film's she can, fascination. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It's quite fast. I don't want to be promoting other people's podcasts. It's mm-hmm. outrageous. But there That's is right. a great uh, uh, a conversation in the Q and A um, with Jeff Goldsmith, where he's talking mm-hmm. to the writers of, of Destroyer, and they talk about the fact that um, Nicole Kidman is, you know, she's a really avid reader. She's known for the fact that she's always reading scripts that are about, and she actually pursues uh, projects and directors. And to her great credit, she, you know, she had read this. She hadn't been given the script, but she'd somehow gotten her hands on it because the script had been circulating for a while. And I know that um, Hay and Manfredi, who, uh, I think it's Hay that's married to Karen Kasama, they, mm. they've you know written a number of scripts that are floating around. But she pursued it and really kind of, you know, she wanted this role and she wanted to do this role. And a lot of, um, they talk a lot about her kind of very intelligent involvement in some of the decisions that ended up uh, being made for the character in the narrative. And it's, yeah, it's a great, it's a great little a little yarn if you get time to listen to it. Mm. Excellent. Mm. Yeah, we'll pop a link in the show notes. Well, on to uh, Dumbo. It's been a whopping 78 years since the beloved Disney cartoon Dumbo was released. And if there's one thing audiences were clamouring for, it was a live-action remake featuring enough CGI to render the term live-action moot. The entrepreneurial <laughs> Max Medici has invested in a pregnant elephant in order to lift the sails of his flagging circus, but his hopes that the baby elephant would be an audience draw are dashed for some reason because the elephant has big ears. Meanwhile, in the story strand everyone's really interested in, kids Millie and Joe Farrier are awaiting the return of their sole remaining parent from the war, and they seem a little trepidatious when their dad steps off the train, but they shouldn't worry too much because their dad, Holt, turns out to be armless. Also, the elephant can fly. (laughs) Uh, Guys, did you, as the film's tagline instructed, 
believe? No, no, I didn't. Um, I don't know. Am I dead inside? But this this film just, I did not want to see Dumbo. I didn't see the original, which apparently is charming and gorgeous and 65 minutes long. Um, And it's animated and it's a Disney film. And Tim Burton doing Dumbo. Yeah, I think what you said before about so much CGI that, you know, why have a live action film? I don't know. It just, there was no magic in this for me. It didn't take off. It mm. never lifted off. And as cute as this baby elephant was supposed to be with the big blue eyes, it just looked unnervingly kind of weird to me. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. But perhaps I'm not the audience for this. Well, I don't know who the audience is. For this. I mean, I look, I, I, I think the, the thing that has set so much of Tim Burton's early work apart is the personality to it. Like, even if, even if that personality was mostly, you know, sort of that weekend makeup, gothic dress up, it still <laughs> felt like an antidote to the mainstream norm. And I think that drew a lot of people in, you know, there was mm. a, a being just slightly weird, slightly offbeat. And it's okay that if, if it was just the aesthetic, because that's, the film is a medium that's about aesthetic, but it's worn thin. I think at this point, it's such a thin veneer of black and white makeup and Danny Elfman music and all this, the tropes we've been making fun of for oh, 15 amazing. years. It's oh, just amazing. so, we've, we've heard it all before. There's just, there's no personality to this film. There's no cause and effect. There's, there's nothing to care about. I, characters, it's quite extraordinary. It really feels like it's been, I don't know, torn apart in the edit or put through some sort of studio ringer because, you know, you've got a character discards an important item of great, you know, personal significance in, in a moment that's meant to be quite symbolic, except they've not mentioned the importance of this of this object before. We're meant to care about the circus folk all losing their jobs, except we don't know them. We don't care mm. about them. There's There's no cause and effect. There's just scenes that happen in what I would charitably described as a sequential order. You know, the fir- one of the first filmmakers we ever talked about on the show uh, was Tim Burton. And mm. so we've been covering him quite closely since, since we started the show. And, and I, I, I'm always kind of rooting for him. I haven't loved his recent output. Few people have. The, the, the girl who sold me the ticket last night at the ticket box said, oh, Tim Burton, I want to see this. But I kind of just mm. like his early stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, it, it's pretty much, you know, a lot of people you know, share this feeling about him. But yeah, this is this is kind of his worst tendencies or or put together into one thing. I don't know what's extraordinary. I don't this is meant to be a film that that that, that is extraordinary, that makes us feel feel uh like an elephant flying is this amazing feat. But because everything in this film has this sort of unrealistic, fantastical cladding, I don't know why the elephant is particularly extraordinary. There's there's just nothing, there's there's really no meat on the bones here. I mean, there's so much that you could do with this story, which is basically a misfit child, an ugly duckling variation. Mm. And, I mean, that's something that would speak to children of all ages now. But I don't think this baby elephant is going to do anything for them, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's, there's less of the gothic fairy tale flourishes that we're used to seeing with Tim Burton, mm. and yet when you see Michael Keaton come in um, as the crazy entrepreneur, there's a little bit of the Willy Wonkers about him with his sort of weird white wig um, and his big grin, but mm. it's like, I don't know, it's like it's from another film almost. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not, I've got to say, there's not a single line reading in this entire film that works. 
not a single line. It's like, I don't know. I just, I'm frustrated. I don't, I don't understand why in a circus of freaks is an elephant with big ears automatically dismissed. They never sell us on that. <laughs> they never sell us on anything. I'm so frustrated by this. Reese, have we talked you into seeing it? How, how are you feeling about this? Uh, <clears throat> I have to say that I, from the trailer onwards, was completely repelled by it. I, I mean, I find that I'm a little bit bewildered by this the constant remaking of these live-action um, Disney classics mm. in a way that, I mean, it's, it's a little bit Uncanny Valley stuff. It's a little bit kind yeah. of like, it, but it, it's, there's something in it. Whenever I see them, I just, I want to run the other way screaming. They seem to me to be like such a kind of, uh, an attempt to kind of cash in on a new generation, mm. but at mm. the same time, I don't really understand what they're going to bring to it. So as much as I do, like you guys, love Tim Burton's early stuff, I kind of look at this and think, no, thank you, I can live my life without ever seeing Dumbo. Yeah. Please tell me that nobody's going to try and do a live-action remake of um, Fantasia. I mean, no, I actually reckon you're safe because there was, I think Walt Disney's original intention was to release a new version of Fantasia every year or every few years or something. And they tried to do this with, they tried to kick it back off again when they released Fantasia 2000. And that was such a massive flop. I think that is the one IP they're never going to return <laughs> to again. I feel like Fantasia's also isn't. I don't think it was ever as popular as as film people want it to be. I think it was one of those films yeah. that you know we love it and it's extraordinary, but I, I suspect it was never quite the. the, the and hang on, the now, I, we've all forgotten this. Didn't they remake uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nicolas Cage? Oh, oh, yes, yes, yeah. There you go. It's happened. <laughs> that was the one that kicked it off. That's right. Way back in the mists of time, when the idea of Hellas for Hyphenates was first mooted, and we landed on the concept of going through a filmmaker's entire catalogue, we heard the same joke from a number of people. When are you going to do the films of Charles Lawton? It's a very, very <laughs> nerdy joke that relies on the knowledge that acclaimed actor Charles Lawton directed one film and one film only. That film is Night of the Hunter, and it's remarkable for being such a lauded work made by someone who never went on to make another film. Now, as we've talked about on the show before, because we try to uh, limit our filmmakers of the month to people who've made five or more films, so we have enough to talk about, we then decided, so as not to exclude those people who had made very few films, we created the mini-hyphenate segment. And in that, we've explored over the years people like Sarah Watts and Jean Vigo and Elaine May and Fabian Belinsky, Adrian Shelley, Zucca Abraham Zucca, Jacques Tati, Herc Harvey, Shirley Clark, so many others. So amidst all the ho-hoing about the idea of us covering Lawton, I always really wanted to get him in there as a mini-hyphenate, but it never happened, partly because, you know, the workload of the show is amazing without voluntarily adding another filmography every few months. Um, so we have let mini-hyphenate slide a bit over the last few years, but God damn it, it's time. It's time to do it. It's time to cover Lawton and his epic filmography. So what do we think, guys? Do we go chronological? Do we go best to worst? Do we go popular to obscure? How do you want to tackle this? <laughs> Let's do it all. Okay. All at once. <laughs> <laughs> start to finish. Well, it's funny that um, we would go start to finish because it was, he is an uncredited, I think he's uncredited, director on a film called The Man in the Eiffel Tower. Because he was playing uh, the famous detective Inspector Magret. I think that's how you say it, Magret. Um, Irving Allen was the original director. 
uh, and he wasn't a hit on set. I think he got fired. I'm not sure. But uh, Charles Lawton threatened to quit if his co-star Burgess Meredith wasn't made the director. So Burgess Meredith directed the film. And, but for any scene that Burgess Meredith was in, Charles Lawton directed. So that's sort of, you know, there, any, any scene where you just see Burgess Meredith is uh, directed by Charles Lawton. Um, so, you know, so there you go. We, we, we can go chronological. <laughs> but um, Tonight of the Hunter, um, what do we think? This is an amazing film. Thank you for making me watch it. I was utterly captivated. It's just, it's this Depression-era gothic thriller with Robert Mitchum playing this religious fanatic serial killer and these little kids that are, you know, running away from him. And it, it's kind of like nothing else I'd ever seen before, although, you know, it reminded me a little bit of something like Nosferatu or, hmm. you know, even some of some moments from um, To Catch a Mo- Mockingbird. No, to kill a mockingbird. Yeah. You know, with the children and the and the kind of that sense of menace and the good and the evil and I don't know. It was a very uh, well directed film for someone who had, you know, has basically made one film. Mm. So you know, if yeah. you cut, if you cut Night of the Hunter together with To Kill a Mockingbird, you'd probably end up with the original Cape Fear. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, Reese, this is a this is a favourite of yours, isn't it? I do. I really love this film. I mean, it's a it's a very strange film, I think, for the time as well. I think this mm. it's a well. I mean, it, it it plays to a lot of my weaknesses. I've got a real obsession with um, the kind of southern gothic. I mean, I love Flannery mm. O'Connor and Faulkner, and I think that this is sort mm. of very evocative of that of that world. And I also an obsessive about um, James O'G and I think that uh, you know when I think very early on I was I was crazy for his his writing for um, uh, his novel A Death in the Family and for Let Us Now Praise Famous Men so when I started reading his biographical details and, and understood that he'd written the screenplays for The African Queen and Night of the Hunter I kind of immediately went to see them and, and mm-hmm. you know there's something about his his playfulness with language which I think ends up in the kind of this strange mixing of, of weird hallucinatory images and and some sort of social realism and then these kind of strange uh, impression, you know, almost sort of like Nosferatu, these sort of evocative interiors where you feel like you're on a stage and you're, you're I mean, it's just on, on a, in terms of the weird tightrope balance that Lawton treads between propelling the story forward and then these amazing sequences, I mean, at the moment where, we see that the the the, the, sort of the, the corpse floating underwater and these mm. long lingering shots yeah. and just like that is just extraordinary. And it's extraordinary for the time and it's extraordinary still now. And of course, um, you know the the performance of of um, oh my god, I'm going to trouble black Mitchum. Like yeah. Mitch, I mean Mitchum is just like that's just one of those great performances where of course it's become iconic and. You know, we everyone knows the love hate knuckles, and it's mm-hmm. it's this sort of it's become such an extraordinary role. But you know, when you just see him reveling in this horrendous, grimy, filthy character, and just it's just <laughs> so so brilliant. Yeah, it's it really is an amazing film. The um, Lawton is obviously a big fan of German expressionism. There's such mm. the black and white and the shadows and and the reflections and that there's. It's they're terrifying, like just the the simple, most simple imagery, where you would say somebody steps up to the window in a script that could look like somebody appears at the window. That could be a jump scare. That could be a very typical, uh, you know, just to cut somebody who's shocked. But the way in which that creeping menace 
of the shadow just sort of appears is just, it's so indicative of, of how clever Lawton is with not, like he, he directed a lot on board Broadway. He was a great theater director, very accomplished. And we often tend to think the cliche is that a great theater director will be great with actors, maybe not so much with the visuals, but he is such a visual storyteller. And I think that's one of the reasons that this film is so, is so beloved uh, and so enduring is that it looks so great. And, and there's so much complex morality in there. Like, you know, films from that era don't always deal with trauma. You know, that feels like a very modern, a very recent thing for films. Mm-hmm. But you look at the Absolutely. way John reacts when the preacher he hates is taken down. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he is so, you know, because it reminds him of what happened to his father. Look at the terrifying righteous mob who are railing against the villain, but they still scare us because we know that, you know, a mob is terrifying even if they're, they're because they're, they're no less righteous in their fury if it happens to be directed at the right person um yeah this this film it's been on my bucket list for so long and i'm so glad i finally got to see it because it's just incredible yeah it really is and i guess i always think of that um i remember years ago seeing um the i don't know if you recall that documentary about cinematography visions of light and they oh yeah they they talked about the you know i mean stanley cortez who shot this is such an amazing cinematographer but they there's that, that, that scene, which I think you were alluding to before, Lee, where um, the, the Lillian Gish character, the, I've forgotten her name, the mother, she's sitting, by yeah. the, she's sitting by the window with the shotgun and we can see, um, we can see Mitchell outside and you know, he's whistling, menacing, humming menacingly and singing and then when the light comes on, suddenly his silhouette disappears outside and when the, the light goes off again, he's gone. It's just yeah. like it's mm-hmm. one of those... Scenes, the way it's structured, the performances—I mean, it's—it's it's so menacing, and yet just the the playfulness and and the design of that sequence is just staggering. You know, still staggering to me. Absolutely. You were you were talking about James Adjie. Um, I don't know how much of his stuff survived uh, it, because there, there are—I think there are some differing opinions on on what or different yeah. takes on what happened. But the story is that he delivered an unfilmable script, and so Charles Lawton adapted the entire thing start from scratch in the space of a week. Um, that could be a bit of self-mythologizing. I don't know how, how accurate that is, but that's the story apparently, which, um, which is, I, ha- I have heard that as well. I think yeah. there's, I think there's even a, a book or, you know, there's been academics who tried to get to the, the heart of how much of it's true and how much of it's false. But I know that the, his involvement was, um, Continued throughout. I think there's quite famously, a G had to come to set to settle disputes between Lawton and Mitchum. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know there's there there is certainly a great deal of ambiguity as to what of his. I think his his original script was you know his epic tone. As mm. you know, if anyone's who's read Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, you can't imagine him writing um, anything as economical as a film script. But uh, <laughs> I think. I think the same. I think the same thing happened with African Queen. Legendarily, it was just you know wild, unfilmable yeah. uh, pieces of work. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always curious as to how much of that is truth and how much of that's fiction. Sure. Well, yeah. It's, I mean, the big question that it, you know everyone has talking about this film is why didn't he direct another film? And and looking into it, there's that thing that we have where any film that we love, we automatically assume was a hit. I remember the first mm-hmm. film. You know, I learnt the truth about in in, in that regard was. Uh, Blade Runner. I couldn't fathom 
that it had not been a hit. I couldn't I couldn't fathom that It's a Wonderful Life was a commercial flop because you know we love them so much now. Um, but yeah, this was a commercial failure. It was uh, and critical as well. I think people just did not get it or didn't. Yeah. you know, quite repelled by it. I mean, just reading about this film, you know, it it made me think about how important it is for a film to come out at the right time Mm. um, in terms of its reception or just how subjective that can be because this came out in 1955 and it was was a film that was just out of a different time and needed Mm. a different mindset to really appreciate it and yet now we we look back on it as such a classic. Um, Yeah, it must have been devastating at the time. I mean, it was it was actually reviled. I think. Yeah, it was. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people hated it. I mean, there was it was loved in some quarters. In uh, Cahiers de Cinema, Francois Truffaut praised it, but he also said it would be really unlikely if Lawton ever made another film, which is uh, (laughs) quite prescient because, yeah, it was it was a huge flop. Lawton was heartbroken uh, by the film's failure, and. One thing I, I didn't quite realise until I looked at the timeline is he only lived for another six years. And there might have been a time, if he'd lived longer, there might have been a time at which the film was reassessed and he was given another shot to direct, uh, another chance to try his hand. But, yeah, that never happened. So as it stands, he's got this sort of perfect one-and-done track record of, you know, having made one film and it's pretty perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Reese. let us know, which filmmaker have you chosen to talk about on Hell is for Hyphenates? So, as I mentioned to you before, when you first asked me, I immediately thought of Claire Denis. And then the second filmmaker I thought of, I actually, to my own shame, was embarrassed about. And I think I mentioned to you, Lee, that I was very concerned about coming across as too much of the art guy by choosing this filmmaker. So I was racking my brain for other filmmakers that I like and thinking who else I could choose, but I had to come back to this filmmaker, and it's um, Christel Kozlowski. Excellent, yes, the ultimate scrabble shot. (laughs) That's right. And the reason for that is um, I, um, and apart from the fact that I obsessively love his films Mm. and can kind of return to his work over and over again, but he actually, for me, was probably the reason I became, first and foremost, uh, uh, you know, an obsessive cinephile, Mm -hmm. but secondly actually wanted to make film because as a, as a, you know, you didn't ask me this question. I'm just going to ramble on no, until you stop me. Please um, but I, uh, as a kid kind of growing up in the suburbs, I just used to go, we used to, we had one cinema uh, that had showed uh, the non, non kind of Hollywood stuff. And, you know, I used to go and see lots of films and I would sit up late at night and watch whatever movies were on. I was, you know, always a really kind of crazy film watcher, but I guess I was only, I was never really exposed to um, inverted commas cinema until I saw um, this one particular film. And what I've done is I used to go to a cinema in the centre of Canberra called um, Electric Shadows, which was uh, an amazing place that programmed quite uh, strange films, a lot of documentaries. um, And I started going there because I was crazy into hip-hop and they showed House Party. And so I went to see House Party at the cinema and I took the flyer home that had all these other films on it and started going to see films. And one of the first films I saw there was Double Up Veronique. And I recall literally having my tiny brain blown open. I didn't know what I had seen. I just, it was as close to kind of a, a 
discovery of faith or a religious experience as someone who grew up as a heathen. And I was just completely struck down by this idea that film was not at all what I thought it was, that it wasn't necessarily telling a story, it wasn't necessarily the thrills, that there was something strange and mysterious and elusive and, um, yeah, like something that I couldn't quite touch and I just sort of uh, got lost in that idea. So that was that for me was a moment where I was like, whatever this filmmaker does, I have to see it. And, and of course, this, you know, pre-internet days, it's, it was impossible to go back and search out works. I didn't have access to seeing any of his other films until the Three Colours trilogy. But then when I moved to Sydney and then Melbourne, I started going to film libraries and I went back and was able to see some of his earlier films. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's it's a, a love that nobody can break. I adore this filmmaker <laughs> and still, and for me, it's been so great having a reason to go back and rewatch films I hadn't seen for 15 or 20 years to look at some of these obscure documentaries. And then of course, just going to going back to rewatch films that I have seen over and over again, like mm. double life of Veronique or some of the three colors films or um, no end. So there, that's awesome. my reason. That's, that's, I choose, I choose Gidlowski. Mm, it's an excellent choice. I mean, the double life of Veronique, which I think came out and it was made in 1990 um, but I don't know what year it came out here in Australia, but it, it was just the ultimate sexy, beautiful, soulful art house film. And, I mean, for those of us who sort of came of age in the 90s, um, yeah, here in Australia, I think Kislowski was kind of an introduction to European contemporary art house cinema hmm. for so many of us. Yeah, so beautiful choice. Yeah, yeah it's one of the – I was thinking about it. I don't know if you recall, was it in Full Frontal that there was the um, – the parody piss take of the SBS reviews. Yes. yes. Yeah. I, I, and I, whenever I think of it, when I think of the, the synopsis of Double Life of Veronique, I just feel like that's, it's almost a parody. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing about it is that it's, you know, as it is, it's exactly that thing. There, it's, there's something incredibly sensual about it. There's, you know, everything on a, on a cinematic level, everything about it is so handmade and so beautifully constructed, but it is, it's just one of those films that I can go back to watch and watch again and again. And it's, I don't know, it's like one of those films that has the whole world in it. Mm. It's, it's, it's no matter how, what kind of lens you look at it through, there's just multiple interpretations and ways that you can experience it. And, you know, there's, I don't know, for me, I, I almost get a bit, a bit mute talking about it, but uh, there it is. I think, uh, yeah, what, what, what Rochelle was saying about the, um, about it being an introduction to contemporary art house European cinema is, is absolutely right because even long before I'd seen these films, I knew what the Three Colours films were. It was kind of the idea, it was what I pictured when somebody mentioned European cinema. This is what I pictured because they were such striking images. They were, it was such a memorable title. It's sort of, you know, a, a woman looking wistfully off into the distance on all three posters, really. Um, <laughs> but um, what I, th I feel like the general sense of... Kieslowski is this, he's this thoughtful art house director captivated by, you know, aesthetic beauty. And, and I think that largely comes from the fact that he's, his best known works and his most uh, popular works, I think, were uh, Double Life of Veronique and the Three Colours films. But I don't know if you guys found this, but going back to the beginning and watching all of his films reveals that this was not 
I wouldn't say an aberration, but it was a shift over time. You know, that is not what his early work was. His early work was verite. It was social realist documentaries, dramas that seemed like documentaries. Uh, very, I would say very Ken Loachian. Um, he reminded me so much of Ken Loach. And I, I became obsessed with this watching his early stuff. And I, and I eventually just Googled Kislowski and Loach and saw that Kislowski had said that Kez, Loach's Kez, was one of his favorite films. And he Absolutely. said, um, you know, I've always said that I never wanted to be anyone's assistant, but if Ken Loach asked me, then I would willingly make him coffee. And, um, <laughs> and it was very much a, a, a reciprocal thing. Loach paid uh, tribute to Kislowski when, when he died and, and wrote a beautiful uh, tribute to him. But um, certainly, yeah, those in, growing up in Poland, right, uh, he, he never considered himself political, but kept making these, I, I think because he was such an empathetic filmmaker, his films were unavoidably political because he kept making films about the downtrodden and the underclass and, you know, people being put in these difficult situations by, by the people who essentially rule over them. Absolutely. I mean, he's kind of, for me, like Loach, and I mean, I think, that, you know, Kez is, is a kind of lyrical beauty as well. I mean, it's, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's very much kind of, you know, gritty social realism, but the, the actual lyricism of it is something that you see in Kieslowski's early stuff as well. And I think that he's just the ultimate humanist filmmaker in a sense that he starts off making, you know, I, I, starts off making documentaries that are just about observing behavior and, you know, it's the, the all the quotidian stuff He's some of his films are, I mean, I think even up to the three colors, they're full of a, a really dark, humor um and a kind of an observation of the the banalities and stupidities of, of everyday life and i mean there's uh, you would have seen i think is, is it called the office the one of his early documentaries where yeah it's just it's just this people applying for their um for the you know the, the equivalent of the doll and and then and each one there the, the, every application they're they're asking the applicants to tell the story of their life and it's just so absurd <laughs> and and but he just has even from his earliest short films he had a way of looking at the world which i think you can see resonate throughout all mm. the rest of his films i mean i've one of his student films um the the night tram is uh mm. or tramway sorry tramway where yep. he's it's about a you know a kind of a romantic young man pursuing a a, a woman who he sees on the on the tramway at night and he's sneaking a, a peek at her through the window, um, and it's just this, this kind of reflections and 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 uh, quiet observations and stealing glances, and quietly uh, observing moments uh, of everyday life through his characters. Something that Kieslowski never left, you know. It's it, and you can see that from the very beginning. So even though he he did these wonderful kind of like. Uh, series of, 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 as you said, like in a kind of social realist or and and just straight observational docos. There was always a, a, an odd way of of seeing the world, and there's a, a kind of a beautiful transition that you see that um, from a film like uh, Scar, which is quite staid and boring, and was uh, a kind of a, a move into social realist filmmaking. Mm. Um, I think he talks about the fact that he was just so frustrated by that film and he, you know, he hates it so much, thinks it's so banal, banal on every level. Um, but then when he actually starts moving into these kind of political black comedies in something like Camera Buff or, um, or uh, Blind Chance, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, he just, he just soars. Yeah. It's, I, I love his thematic links. I find quite myself quite drawn to, to the sort of, uh, 
almost nerdy obsessiveness to of completionism to cover every you know he he made you know the ten part series decalogue all essentially set in the one apartment block with each chapter sort of obliquely examining uh one of the ten commandments uh and you know and and three colors you know uh each of those films looked at an aspect of uh uh, the, the three sort of ideals of France are, uh, you know, liberty, fraternity, um, s- s- Snoopy, Doc, I forget. Equality. <laughs> Equality, sure. And he'd also planned uh, another trilogy, um, Heaven, Hell and Purgatory. And yes. I remember Tom Twyker made Heaven with Kate Blanchett and Giovanna, uh, Giovanni Ribisi uh, years after Kislaski had died. And I, I looked up and I discovered Hell has also been made. Um, by a Bosnian no, it's actually, filmmaker. It's, it's really beautiful. A hell I really... I mean, I wasn't completely sold on heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, I and, was very but, disappointed. Yeah, but yeah. I thought, I thought um, hell is actually... It's a really beautiful film. It's sort of... It, it Of course, it never can compare when you imagine what Kozowski might have done. But, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he did also say that he'd retired prior to making those, but there's yeah. always this... This question of if he if he had taken himself out of retirement, what those what those scripts might be like. But I mean, I think his his collaborator um, Pichovitz has you know there's such extraordinary screenplays. Mm. And I know that with Decalogue, for example, many many years ago when I was uh, studying first started studying directing, we used uh, I think it's Decalogue four. We would use scenes from Decalogue four, and you bring in actors. And the screenplays are so incredible that you can give them to any actor hmm. and they will do the best work wow. of their lives. They're, they're just, they're, they're, they're so layered with so much subtext, but yet they're also just very everyday dialogue. They do, he does this remarkable thing where, I mean, I guess for me, I find myself really drawn to directors who have spent a lot of time as documentary makers as well, because their observations of life tend to be very, True, they tend to be very human, um, and that's what he, you know, he writes dialogue that is, it never feels laboured, it never feels like it's trying to push the film along, it feels every day, and yet somehow it's resonant, and and it, it is the kind of thing that for, if you, if, you know, for directors who love working with actors, mm. you can grab those scripts and, and work with them, you know, in so many different ways, and do such uh, amazing work, it's, yeah, that, that's been that was a revelation, a very early revelation to me as well about his work. Mm. I always think of the, there's his film Camera Buff is mm. such a brilliant film, and I love the fact that it's it's one way into his work where you look at um, you, you look at the kind of the discovery of, of filmmaking and this kind of this wild frustration. It's for those who haven't seen it, it's a about a, a young factory worker who's blissfully happy. His um, his wife's pregnant. They're and he buys a camera, a little eight millimeter camera, to film the birth of his daughter, and he's so excited by that. And this, he, he starts looking at the world through the camera, and he he, he sort of develops Kislovsky's eye. He starts seeing, you know, if you watch Kislovsky's film, he has these strange visual obsessions, like, you know, an old woman struggling along the street, um, or, you know. T- Famously, he's you know he's given cinema lessons on on the timing of a sugar cube dissolving in a cup of coffee in uh, in three colours blue. You know he's as he's sort of straight, but this is this in camera buff he expresses it through this guy who starts seeing the world through the lens, and it completely corrupts him. Mm. <laughs> and this, there's this sort of great moment. I think it's I, I wrote down one of the little great pieces of dialogue where he says 
um, he, his wife becomes so frustrated by him only wanting to look through the camera. And she just wants a simple life and he suddenly is making films for the factory, he's getting lauded at film festivals, he's getting tempted by his sort of this bigger world outside and he's, mm. he's saying, he says to his wife, no, it's just as you say, I wanted it all and I have it and I'm happy, I really am. But the movie thing started, you saw it all by itself, just by itself. And I saw that it can all be more important than peace and quiet, you see. And <laughs> eventually his wife leaves him with the baby and he frames her up as she leaves the door. He can only see this horrendous moment in his own life through a camera. He yeah. sort of steps back. And it's just, it's very, it's very funny, but also for me, it's like a really, a, a kind of a beautiful self-reflexive look at Kieslowski who, in a way, was just some camera buff. And in fact, we didn't mention before Ken Loach, I know there's a moment where the, the character in camera buff, he's looking through a book of cinema, he's trying to learn about this, you know, what is it, this thing, why is he, why is he loving seeing the world through a camera? And the pictures and the filmmakers that he looks at in this little book of cinema, uh, Drew Menzel, and then he stops at the Ken Loach page and looks at the, the picture of, of Kez. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Is Camera Buff the film where he, the character eventually turns the camera back onto his yes. own face? It is. That's yeah. the I love that moment so much. It's such a yeah. great ending. I, I saw a clip of that in the documentary I'm So So, mm, which was yes. also on the DVD of the Decalogue, and it's a portrait of Kieslowski. And um, I think the, the interviewer says, where, where are you in your films here? And he says, I'm everywhere. Um, something, you know, all my films have, have me and my point of view there, but, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think Camera Buff was about his own obsession with cinema? I, I feel it was. Um, he, he very much makes films that sort of reflect his own experience in a way. Camera buff did feel like, you know, reading about him going to film school and then seeing this character sort of go off to film school and get, you know, and make, make things for TV felt a lot like his origin story. He was certainly borrowing from his own life if he, if he wasn't. There's, it's also a very empathetic but self-critical, and I think he was a very self-critical man, and I've never seen a man like this portrayed on screen before. Someone so, so in touch with their emotions, but and so softly corrupted. It's really quite a damning portrait, you know. And I look at that in in you know Camera Buff with a film like Personnel, his first feature, which is basically very similar to what happened to Kozlowski in that he, uh, it's about a sensitive young man who wants to work in art and becomes a tailor in the opera but he becomes disillusioned by the whole thing because there's so much petty bickering behind the scenes. And I think, yeah, he, he does... I mean, these are quite literal ways he's peppered himself in there by borrowing from his own biography to make films. But, I, yeah, I, would, I look at those two films as the two strongest reflections of, of who he might have thought he is. Absolutely. But, but in a way, like, he's, it, it, the one thing that he has always done is reflected on the idea of him as a kind of voyeur or as an observer of of intimacy and you can tell that he, you know he's one of the great directors of of human intimacy there's so mm. many scenes even from his um you know the scenes in in no end in camera buff in um in blind chance that you know these amazing scenes in bedrooms with lovers uh that that are just he can be very he can be very brutal in in revealing how 
petty and foolish we are. <laughs> like mm. it can be very, very, very brutal. And yet at Absolutely. the same time, at the very same moment, there is just this incredible adoration of, 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 of who we are as well. It's like, it's like you, can't, you can't love what it is to be human if you don't also embrace the fact that we are corruptible and greedy and selfish and, and petty. And, and, it, and that sort of, you know, you go out to his final film, you look at, you know, Red, which for me is just like the, one of the mm. most perf- perfect films ever made. And, and the central character is just like horrible, eavesdropping, petty, mm. resentful old man yeah. who is, you know, who, who somehow kind of has to rediscover what lies beneath all those resentments. Um, and and I, I always sort of think, you know, without getting a bit too film studies on it, I mean, there must be something about those early, the early obs- films that he made where he's, he's working, um, you know, within, within a system of significant censorship where he had to be very careful about what he made and how mm. he made it. You find this kind of constant sense of eavesdropping and voyeurism and confessions and surveillance on, on, on every level throughout the films, over and over again, you know, people are always, uh, you know, whether in Decalogue you've got the, in, I think Decalogue Nine, the mm. the jealous jealous lover who's, who, you know, taps the phones. Um, the same thing is in Red. You know, you have people eavesdropping on conversations from his earliest works. And I just kind of, I don't know. I love the fact that I love when filmmakers have their little thematic uh, obsessions and they just continually unravel them and refine them and, and, and develop them over and over time. He doesn't, you're not, not continually reinventing himself. In fact, he's yeah. just going deeper and deeper into these, these, these studies of what it is to be human. Yeah. I wonder if like, I mean, there are so many, you do feel like he did find an interest and then try to export from every, every angle, like on the superficial level, it's how do I dramatize concepts like the 10 commandments or like, uh, the three pillars of, of French society. How do I take those and turn them into dramas? And I think a lot of that came where he and you mentioned his co-writer, um, P- Pesowicz, how do you say? Pesowicz, I think. Yeah. So they actually met because uh, he was a lawyer and uh, Kazarski wanted to make a documentary about uh, the injustice of the criminal courts. And mm. they kept they they found that because they had a camera in the courtroom, it changed the outcome of the. There was no there was very little injustice because everyone was aware that they were being filmed. So instead, they went, "Well, why don't we dramatize it? Why don't we take this concept and dramatize it?" And it turned into the film No End uh, in '85, uh, which also amazingly features the ghost of a lawyer watching over his family throughout the film, which is just a sort of beautifully haunting moment because they see him from time to time uh, in these, these incredible moments. But from that point on, the two of them collaborated on every film because kept convincing him because, you know, he went back to being a lawyer and Kozlowski would pull him back in and say, come write this other film with me, come write Decalogue with me, come write, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, they had, they obviously had a great working relationship, but, uh, but sorry, yeah, we're talking about the connections. Uh, and the way he mines, he has an idea and then he mines it. There are so many moments where you see him do a, a variation on a theme. Uh, I, I find that, that the ending of, um, uh, which one was it? I think it was The Calm in 76. Uh, it ends with, after a moment of violence, he just keeps muttering. The film ends with him muttering, calm, calm, calm mm-hmm. to himself. Yeah. And Decalogue 5 which was turned into a short film about killing, ends with the lawyer muttering, I abhor it, 
I abhor it. I abhor it after mm-hmm. the execution, just talking to himself. Mm-hmm. The film, interestingly, does not. A short film about killing changes the ending. But I, I, I just love the, this, this mantra, the, um, the way he ends uh, two, well, only two of his works, but, but that's enough to you know, create a connection. A climactic moment of violence followed by the poetry of someone just trying to mutter a mantra to themselves to sort of sum up what they're feeling at that moment. Well, he does. I mean, I think he really cleverly, uh, you know, he has those moments that are really heightened states or, or they're kind of strange little ruptures in, in what mostly is, you know, very, very intimate realist filmmaking. Mm. Um, I always think of that, that moment in, uh, in no end, the, the Ulla, the woman who, so her, her, her husband's died. And as you, as you mentioned before, she occasionally sees him as a ghost and, Mm. Um, at the same time, she's helping his last client, who is uh, during the Solidarność Soledad- period. You know, there's been a, a military clampdown. He's in he's in prison for his organisations with the union. But there's this this moment that just kills me, where Ulla is explaining to her son what he had seen, where he he asks, you know, he saw his parents lying together naked, and she's saying to him, you know, that 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 that, that embrace, that that thing that he he had seen, you know, obviously seen them uh, making love, is that is is that's that's how he came to exist, mm. and then and then the son looks directly to the camera, and it's this sort of little breaking of the fourth wall where it's like this, this for this kid, he's just gone this insane mystery or this like madness that's at the heart of things. He just simply cannot can't fathom. He's just mm. asked his mother, "What did I see?" And she's like, "What you saw is where you came from." And I just love the fact that just for this moment, he just dissolves everything, and the kid just looks at him and goes. What the fuck is all this about? <laughs> and, and there is something about you know that, that Kiszowski that even though we look at his films as these, you know, these grave, sensuous, beautiful examinations, you know, like Blue is a one of the most amazing meditations on grief. But he yeah. does have this cruel streak that 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 sometimes manifests itself in like those little clever moments, but sometimes manifests itself in in dark humor. And I. I love that about him. You know, I love that, that, that there's in there's a, a deep cynicism that he wrestles with, mm. um, but that is always hand in hand with this like absolute adoration of what it is to be human. In terms of him uh, as this political figure, you know, we were talking about how so much of his early work was political, even though he didn't think he was political. I, I love the film Blind Chance in '87, which oh, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it's if you want to see um, the Polish art house version of Sliding Doors, which I know a lot of people came out of Sliding Doors, and they said, I would have liked it more if it was Polish and arty. <laughs> um, this is the, because it's about, you know, it's all about fate. It's a man running for a train, and we see three different outcomes of it. He uh, catches it or misses it. In the first, he, you know, just gets onto the train, meets an old man who convinces him to join the Communist Party, and he becomes a communist operative. In the second, uh, his fate, you know, he smashes into a security guard who, or a railway guard who gets him arrested and he eventually ends up joining the anti-communist resistance. And then the third, he goes to medical school and refuses at different points to engage with either pro-communist or anti-communist behaviour because he says he's not political. And I find that also, also the film ends with, as he's boarding a plane, he sees people from all the different chapters come together for this trip, which is very, uh, very much foreshadowing the ending of the Three Colors trilogy, uh, all the Absolutely. characters from all three on a, going on a trip together, but that's a very humanist approach to politics, where he says, you know, mm. it's just a little twist of fate, and you become a communist or a, the opposite of a communist, an anti-communist, 
or you don't care either way. And it's just about circumstance. It's not that these ideologies speak to you in some deep way, but yeah, it's, it, it, you know, a small twist of fate and it can completely change your outlook on, on the political world. Absolutely. And I think he was, he was obsessed with this idea that the things that we imbue with meaning, like political systems or religion or the church, you know, that what he saw behind it was this idea that people just didn't know why they believed these things. That deep down, we're like, as humans, we, there, I mean, I guess what the Decalogue is, is the, is the kind of unraveling of that in a way, like they're trying to look at, we, we have these like 10 commandments of how to live. And yet all those films are just about people who, while they believe in certain things, all of their actions move against that. You know, mm. And that as, as humans, uh, we, we live as contradictions because we have these lofty ideals, whether it's the, you know, the liberty, equality, fraternity of, of the three colours or the, or the Decalogue itself. Um, and yet, you know, you see continually through his films people who cheat on each other, who lie to each other, who spy on each other um and there's something about the pettiness of that that's just like people just desperately searching for something to believe in and, and blind chance is beautiful in that way because it's just like yes with a with a pure accident with like you know a, a slip of a slip of uh, chance you can end up in three you know you can end up a leftist a party hack or dead you know <laughs> just, um and there you go there's just I don't know, there's something deeply deeply funny and deeply human about that I mean, he's a deeply um, moral and metaphysical sort of filmmaker. He grapples with, you know, religion, belief, morality, and yet, and chance, and yet he always comes out on the side of, I mean, he never answers those questions. He leaves he leaves things mysterious while always coming back to that kind of um, idea that we're connected, we're all connected you know, yeah, rather than yeah. one of those filmmakers that leaves you feeling like, oh, God, Absolutely. you know, we're all so isolated and atomised. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think that I think that's spot on. Outside of the cutesy, oh, I recognise that person from that other chapter or that other film, which is... Oh, is... another old lady hunched over. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and it's There's very so satisfying. Those little Easter eggs are satisfying, but you're right, it does, it does continually remind us that we're all connected. We're all, uh, we're all minor players in someone else's story and they're minor players in ours. And it's, yeah, it is a very, very, uh, very strong theme of interconnectedness. Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, there's something else he also, I always think about, um, many, many years ago, I read the Kieslowski on Kieslowski, the, the Faber and Faber book that mm. um, he did, Denisia Stock. And he talked about the trying the one of the reasons why he wanted to make double up Veronique and he talks he says this thing that's uh, the realm of superstitions fortune telling presentiments intuition dreams all this is the inner life of a human being and all this is the hardest thing to film and there is there's very much that interconnectedness you're talking about but one thing you see through his films is just this attempt to take us really deeply into a very personal kind of surface of the skin point of view of characters and I think that it's something that that's that very much started after Scar you he starts actually refining a, a way of filming where you, you're constantly shifting through the from the point of view of this interior life of characters from of their presentiments their intuitions things that are a little bit uh hallucinatory like seeing the ghost of a dead husband or you know an encounter with a lover 
And then that kind of really ramps up when you obviously get to the Three Colours uh, yeah. trilogy, Double Up, Veronique, where, you know, there's so, there's so much about subjectivity. And I joked before about that, that um, the, there's a, you know, this online lesson about Kislowski talking about the perfect timing of a sugar cube dissolving in a coffee cup. And he sort of says it's it's got to be five seconds. That's how long the audience can watch it. It can't be eight seconds, it can't be three seconds. And so they spend all day trying to find the right sugar cube that would dissolve at the right rate just at five seconds in the coffee cup of Juliet Benoche's character, um, Julie in blue. But the reason he did that is to try and take us deep inside her point of view is that she's at the table with a man she cheated on her now dead husband with who is confessing his love to her and she just deeply concentrates on the sugar cube dissolving in the cup. And it's those that, that, that obsession with the minutiae and the, and the ways that um, – our, our interior life can be made somehow visible in, in film is such an amazing obsession because, you know, film will always be superficial. It's always from the outside in. Mm. Um, and there are very few filmmakers, I think, like him who have gotten to the metaphysical, who have actually been able to to create a sense of, 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 of intuition and dreams. And I think one of the other things he famously said was after making Double Life of Veronique, he was approached by a young girl after one of the screenings and she'd gone back over and over again to see it and she'd previously been atheist or agnostic or didn't really believe in anything, but she said that when she watched that film, she suddenly realised that there was a soul. Huh. And you kind of go, but how the fuck in a film? Great, <laughs> <laughs> that sense. But that's precisely what it does, that it's somehow, in, in, in the most romantic way, it's, it it makes manifest that sense that we have sometimes of, of being connected to somebody else or the absence of someone, uh, you know, like how do we feel like we're not alone in the world or how do we suddenly feel so alone? I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of greatest aspiration to try and do it as a, as a film artist. But, um, you know, he's, once he did it, it's like, why the fuck would anyone else try? Yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's so beautifully done. I do want to ask you guys about the ending of the three colors trilogy. It's the last thing that. His most popular works, the last image he puts out into the world as a filmmaker, is the protagonists from all three Three Colours films being rescued from a ferry disaster. They're the only survivors amongst 1,400 people on that ferry going from France to, to England. Mm. And I keep thinking about, is that just a an appropriation of that trope from disaster movies where it doesn't matter how many thousands or millions of people die so long as, so long as our protagonists survive. A very natural thing if you care about the people you care about. And I sort of started coming up with all these theories of, you know, of narrative Darwinism and, and trying to figure out what he was saying with that. But the fairy is introduced quite late in the piece. And I wasn't mm. sure, is he just trying to find a way to connect them all in one moment? Or is he trying to say that these ideals of France, and he's a Polish filmmaker. I don't know how emotionally connected he was to France. Uh, if he was a French filmmaker, I'd be reading all sorts of extra stuff into this. But I was wondering if he was saying that these, these, uh, these three ideals of French society will endure, regardless of, of what happens, of what disaster befalls you, of, of the, the crashes and the deaths and the sinkings, that the people who represent these three ideals, and therefore the ideals themselves, will survive anything we can throw at them. But don't well, you think it's about Europe rather than France? Because those three films take place in Poland, France and Switzerland and it, there's kind mm. of that idea of the, the symphony that's about the unification of Europe. Totally. And so 
it's it's maybe it's more about Europe than France. Right. Well, and, I, that's 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 how I see it as well. I, I mean, I think it's partly a, you know, it's it's a narrative device in the same way that he uses in Blind Chance, where you kind of look at just the the pure. These characters have been chosen just as uh, out of out of all of the the people on that ferry. These these survived, and yet they are worthy of a, a story being told about their own personal experience, their own lives. But on on a bigger level, it's also the idea that you know Europe is defined by tragedy. Europe is defined by <laughs> by this the idea that like you know they have Europe has has forged a unification out of the 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 complete mess of, of, of tragedy and I, I, I don't right. know I know I've, I've read I've read various interpretations that that's very much the kind of the, the final moment but oh you look you've both uh, convinced me I'm uh, I like this interpretation much more <laughs> it gives you chills up your spine though doesn't it I mean isn't it just uh, I mean I don't know about you but I just felt with those final images that that the completion of something and and something very kind of I don't know spiritual mm. yeah I know that there was. I, I, I'm just desperately trying to find it, but I know that Kizowski did he did comment on it. And I can't remember what and that he said. Oh, oh well, you, well, you guys say intelligent things. I'll quickly search for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did find it interesting that like he sort of hit it big with. Um, he made two of the chapters of Decalogue into feature films: a short film about killing, and then a short film about love. And a short film about killing was sort of the big hit. I I didn't like it. I much prefer the Decalogue chapter. Uh, he, he, he filters the hell out of it like he's Ridley Scott doing, you know, his 50th re-edit of Blade Runner. It's, uh, I find it really ugly looking. I don't think the narrative works as well. Whereas a short film about love, he changes the ending and taking it in that different direction, I think makes that film better than Decalogue, I forget which one it was, six maybe? Um, yeah, yeah, I thought it was... I agree, I agree, I agree, absolutely. No, it was, it was very interesting to sort of watch them all in, uh, if, you know, bizarrely, um, I was incredibly sick last week and watched all ten hours of Decalogue in one hit and then watched a short film about killing and a short film about love. So they're very much, I was able to compare them all in very short shrift. That's amazing. Was that in one day? What a yeah. marathon. That's yeah, I don't so think it amazing. helped me get better, but uh, <laughs> it was certainly a way to kill a day. And what did you think of Decalogue? I mean, what's your... Um, I, I adored it. I was um, I was so impressed with it. It was... Th- there are so many obvious places you can take stories that adapt each of the commandments. And, and he avoided, I think, the obvious route with every single one of them. Mm, mm. I, I mean, it's, it's one of those things I was mentioning it to... I was in the edit room working last week and I... I you know mentioned that I'd been going back through Kozlowski stuff and 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 immediately the the one of my colleagues there and the editor were like oh my god that decalogue that decalogue you know one one just was completely destroyed by decalogue one in which the young boy this brilliant young boy is obsessed with computers and you know it's, it's a very interesting kind of interpretation of uh, what's the what's the first commandment the no fault no uh, no, no God above. No, no, no God. Yeah. yeah. But you know, the, the young boy dies in that. And she was just saying, I've never, it's never left me. And then the other, uh, fellow was talking about the fact that I think it was, um, Decalogue, maybe it was Decalogue four. He was saying, but he, the same thing is like, it's never left me. And there's something about those stories, which they're all just like small. They're not really morality tales, even though they're about mm. morals, but they're, they, they just get under your skin in a way that is so haunting. And I, 
found myself, you know, I think there was Decalogue 9, they were, he was going to make into a short film about jealousy. Apparently he had oh, a contract right. with the distributors. And the reason he made the, the, the short film about love and the short film about killing was the distributors who financed the Decalogue, they needed to be able to distribute films outside of Poland. Mm. Um, and so he had to convert a couple of them into uh, into films. And he was going to do Decalogue 9 as well, which is... Nine was my favourite, so that would have been amazing. It's really good. So fantastic. I mean, it's, it's been such a trip. You know, I, I'd never seen Double Life of Veronica before. I love it. I'm so glad I got to see it. It was so much fun revisiting the Three Colours trilogy, but just going back and, and discovering this, this filmmaker that I thought I knew at least a little bit had this whole other world, to, you know, so many other strings to his bow. He was a completely different filmmaker to the one I thought he was. And yeah, I can't recommend enough going back and like checking out to anyone who only knows him from those last few works, going back and checking out his early stuff. Cause it's just, it's riveting. And one of the, one of the great joys is that, um, uh, tour film studios, which I think when Kozlowski was making films, it was, um, Christoph Zanussi was the head of it. And then Kozlowski himself was the head of the studio for a while, but they have the most fucking amazing restorations of his films that are just on YouTube. So tour, the, the, the studio that you can watch um, most of his early works. Um, I think I think short film about love and short film about killing as well. And I had seen a lot of these films back on shitty old prints or on VHS tapes, and it was like watching a new film for me. I was I love rewatching them from from these new remasters. I mean, it's very nerdy, but it, they are just fucking luminous. I loved it. Brilliant. Well, we'll try and throw some links in the show notes if anyone wants to check those out. Reese, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure having you on. Thank you for having Thanks, me. It's Reece. been so fun. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye-bye. Bye.